you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Esther 4. We're going to be concluding with this. Uh, this is actually the second part. So one message, Rob uh, did the first part of the message last week, and I'm continuing with the second part. So one, one message, two parts. And if you have uh, your bookmarks, we're going to be referencing this uh, several times. If you missed last week, we actually have some of these bookmarks in the vestibule as you go out to the lobby. We'd love for you to pick this up. But Rob did an incredible job of helping us understand that God in his providence, that we are not in this place and these things are not happening to us by accident, but in his providence, he uses all things for his redemptive purposes. And we were encouraged uh, using this bookmark to write down something that we were, are in or facing for such a time as this. And so I would encourage you, if you haven't, if you haven't got this, and go back and listen to Rob's message if you, if you haven't been able to. But this really is a continuation of what Rob has been talking about. Uh, Rob last week talked about uh, G.R. Tolkien's uh, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And if you're familiar with the, the books or the movies, you know that there's this ring that uh, they're trying to destroy because the person who carries the ring, um, it, it's the most powerful ring. And the person who carries it is affected by it, is actually transformed by it. It actually exposes the darkest parts of the heart that uh, desire power, and it makes them more powerful, but it also just consumes them and enslaves them. And so Frodo uh, has been tasked with uh, carrying the ring up to Mount Doom, where the only place where it can be destroyed. And he's been tasked to do that. And he uh, is in this conversation with Gandalf. And in the conversation, he says to Gandalf, I wish that this ring would never have come to me. I wish that it never would have come into my life. Now, I think a lot of us can identify with this uh, in our stories. I want you to fill in the blank. I wish that this situation, this thing, had never come into my life. What would that be for you? If you can't think of one right off the bat, I know you could probably think of one for someone else. I wish that this would never have happened to this person. I wish it never would have come into their life. We can all identify in, in some degree with what Frodo is, is, is saying here. Is like, I don't want this in my life, and I, I, I wouldn't ask for this. I wouldn't desire this. And if we continue the conversation that he has with Gandalf, Gandalf then says to him these, these key words, Frodo, there are forces at work in this world besides the will of evil. You were meant to have this ring. So we are seeing in Esther this very real sense that, that this visible faith is going out. We're looking back on the story, but the people in the story going through that would not have been able to easily identify how God was working. They would have been facing these situations in real time, making real mistakes, struggling with faith, struggling to see where God is working in all this, just like you and I would. But the thing that we're learning in the story is that God is always at work for his redemptive purposes. He is constantly at work working out situations for our good, for the good of those who love him. And so when we, when we step back, we see that Gandalf's words are to be an encouragement to Frodo. So how could... Um, Understanding that God is provident over everything, be an encouragement to us even when we face these hard situations. It's what we're going to wrestle with, that we were meant to carry these, 
you are in this situation, in this place for a reason. So when prayer requests come in, we often have been asking for these, but when prayer requests come in, many times my, my first go-to prayer that I pray every time for, for us as a body and for you as the individual is this, that it's from 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Actually continues on past verse 5, but this is the, the main bulk of it because it gets the reality of what Frodo is wrestling with and what we wrestle with. How does God work these things for redemptive purposes? It says this, Blessed be the God of the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may, this is so key, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in the affliction with the comfort which we ourselves received by being comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also is our comfort in abundance through Christ. You see, I think that gets at the heart that God is always wants to walk with us, even in the hardest of times, so that he can comfort us so that we will be a comfort to others. How many of us are encouraged by someone else who has gone through a similar circumstance of someone who has battled cancer to come alongside someone who just receives the news of cancer. We need each other in this life to encourage one another so that we can extend the very comfort and grace that God has given to us in our times. The thing that I believe is so true that I would encourage you to write down is if we walk with God, he will not waste pain. If we choose to walk with God, he will not waste pain. He will redeem it. He will use it for his purposes. And it's been so true in my life. And we're going to have an opportunity to hear a story of of that truth being worked out and fleshed out. And I know for many of you, when you wrote that thing down in the bookmark, it does not feel hopeful. It does not feel like there's going to be any change. It doesn't feel like I really can understand how God is using this situation or that I'm in this place for a reason. But if we choose to walk with God, he will not waste pain. So as hard as it is to understand completely the doctrine of providence that that God in his most holy, wise, and powerful ways are governing all of his creatures and all their actions, this is a difficult thing to wrestle with. But the encouragement that Gandalf gives Frodo, and I think the encouragement that the scriptures give us, is that the same God that is over everything, we aren't just walking through this life alone, but that we are to be comforted that he sees us, that he knows us, that he mourns and weeps with us, that he has given others around us to encourage us. I hope that when we wrestle with this, it will be something that we can actually embrace, one of the hardest truths. Something my uh, student pastor growing up said to me, um, he said it to everyone, not just me, but he said it to everyone. He said, uh, you know, Eric, this life is not about you. It's all about God. And let me tell you, when he said it, I'm a teenager. No, life is all about me, okay? But let me just tell you, as an adult, it still irks me because life is still all about me. The reason why I have a hard time with God's sovereignty and providence is because many times the hard things in my life are not my agenda. It's not really about my happiness. It's not being met, okay? So that's why I'm getting frustrated by these things that are happening. The more I embrace that God is in control and that actually God knows more than I do, 
I mean, it sounds so foolish to say it out loud, that the God of the universe actually knows better than I do what I need, right? It sounds foolish to like say, like, I don't believe that. But really, functionally, how I live my everyday life is for me at the center. It's about my happiness. It's about my agenda. When things happen, it's always, how does it affect me? You know, those things are so easily come to my mind. But the thing when I wrestle and I actually embrace God's sovereignty, the thing I can actually do is I can actually rest that God is in control, even when I can't see that he is working. But I know that he is faithful and that his word says, if I surrender to him, he will comfort me and he will be faithful and he will work something out for the good of those who love me, for those who love him. But it's still hard. It's still a wrestle. It's still an everyday thing. And so this morning, I want to help us wrestle and look at the choice that Esther will make. And when she makes this, it will unlock several other actions unfolding God's redemptive plan. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we ask and we seek your wisdom, your words to speak into our lives. Would you encourage? Would you convict? Would you comfort? Would you empower us by your spirit through your people? Um, to walk this life with you, not apart from you, not trying to do it on our own, but with you, God. And when we walk with you, God, would you show us your redemption, your reconciling, your restoring all things. I pray this in your name. Amen. So we're in chapter four. We're going to pick up in the, in the back part, but I want to uh, just do a recap real quick of where we are in the story. So where we are in the story is Esther has been elevated to queen. Haman, uh, we're introduced in in chapter three of who Haman is. Haman's elevated to the second most uh, important uh, position in all of the Persian empire. And he's elevated that position. And then what happens? Mordecai doesn't do what? He doesn't pay homage. He doesn't bow down. It it enrages uh, Haman to the point where he doesn't want to just get rid of Mordecai. What does he want to do? He wants to get rid of all the Jews. So he issues this decree to go out into all of the Persian Empire, that if there is any Jew there to be annihilated, uh, their stuff is to be taken, and they're, they're trying to wipe out all of uh, all the Jewish people. Then Rob picked up in, 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 in beginning of chapter four with what do we see Mordecai doing? He is visibly mourning. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, a sackcloth, this coarse outer garment that he's wearing. He's put with some ashes. And then he's audibly weeping and mourning and going on outside the king's gate. And so then what does Esther do? She wants to comfort him. She wants him to stop in this mourning process. But the reality is, is that all of the Jews at this point are in a place of mourning and fasting and weeping. They are outwardly expressing their grief and their mourning. The very thing that is important to pick up on this, is why are the Jews in exile? Because they have turned from God. And then God placed the Babylonians and then the Persian Empire to take over them. They are in exile because of their unfaithfulness to God. So this darkness, this dark time of what is happening, the decree that goes out, the very thing that is causing mourning in them, what is it causing them to do at this point? To turn back to God. This is actually part of God's, he's using this situation to turn them back to them for their dependence on God, to find their dependence on him. God's works of providence are always at work towards redemption. So then we find out that this, after this decree goes out, now Mordecai is pleading with Esther. 
He is pleading with her, reminding her of who she is, her identity, who is in control, that if, if she doesn't do this and go through this plan, that God will raise somebody else up. And through this, Mordecai is pleading with her to go into the, to the king's court, into the, into the king, and say, um, please uh, change this decree and to plead with the king on behalf of her people. But what does she respond back to Mordecai? Mordecai, it's, it's the law. If I go in there and he, and he hasn't invited me, what's going to happen? Death. So she knows that. She responds back to Mordecai. And then Mordecai says this key phrase, how do you know that you weren't placed in the position of the palace for such a time as this? So then we're left in this story with this climax of the story. What will Esther do? How will she respond? And I think this is the, the key switch that we see. Would you pick up with me in chapter 4? How will she engage? Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, who's been pleading with her, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not, again, reminding, it's not according to the law. If I go in and he uh, didn't call me, I, I'm, I'm going to die unless he extends the scepter to me. But then she says this, this key phrase, if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded. See, Esther is realizing at this point this very real thing that if God does not intervene and she goes into the king's court, what's going to happen? Her life is ended. So she is going and she's, she's going to fast with her maidens, but then what does she call all of the Jewish people to do? To fast and, and, and pray and for, for her. Now, the fasting part, I believe, it, it, it talks that they're going to pray, that it's, it's a pleading part. So what is fasting? It's a great opportunity to talk about this. Fasting is a voluntary abstaining from food or drink. Fasting reminds us that life, in order for us to live, comes from outside of ourselves. That we have to breathe in air, that we have to take in nutrients, that we have to drink water. It reminds us that we are dependent on God and not ourselves. That is what fasting does. Jesus, when he is with his disciples, talks about fasting. He says this, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast. See, I think this is supposed to be part of our uh, everyday life. This is fasting. Of, of, fasting reminds us that we are not to be self-sufficient, that we were not created on this. When Jesus is tempted and he's fasting, what does he say? Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word from God. Fasting reminds us that we are to be dependent on God in a very tangible way. What would it look like if you took what you wrote on your bookmark and took the situation that you're facing and did just this? Give up a meal, give up a day where you would actually bring this before God in the same way that Esther did. God, I need you to intervene. I'm dependent on you. I cannot be dependent just on myself. What would that look like? That is the heart behind the discipline of fasting. It's not just so you can be the super Christian who like, oh, I fast once a week. It's so that you can remind yourself and remind our hearts that our hearts are prone to think that we can do it on our own. Are they not? So we're going to be talking about how does this unflesh. 
A simple truth of this story is not only Esther's own personal faith, but that Esther brings others into her faith. Uh, it brings others in to pray with her, to, to fast with her. She brings uh, a community of faith into her situation. Just very quickly, who is it that you could bring into your situation and say, would you pray for me? Who could you text and shoot an email to and invite into your situation and say, would you pray with me? How can you invite others into what God is doing in your life? See, I think Esther is shifting her understanding for her need from just relying on herself to for God to intervene in her life. She is part of this community of faith. So when we pray, when we fast, what are we doing? It is not that we're pleading with the king of, the, of this world, the, the, the king of the court, of the powers that be in this world. We are pleading to the king of kings and we boldly come and ask. We should be in awe that we can approach God. I mean, think of this. The gospel is that you get God because of what Christ did. Nothing that you did. It's by grace alone. And that you are adopted as his child and that now, because of Christ, his righteousness covers you, and now you can boldly come before God. Think about in the Old Testament, in, in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. God's presence is dwelling there. What would happen if someone didn't go through all the sacrifices and atoning and all those things to enter the Holy of Holies? What would have happened to those persons if someone just walked in? That's my lightning bolt strike, you know. Um, but they, they would have been dead. Why is that? Because God's presence could not be in relationship with sin. So we needed not only a savior, we needed a mediator, which we're going to talk about, but we needed someone who was sinless, who was perfect to enter and mediate on our behalf. Prayer then is something that we should not just be like, oh yeah, I'm going to say a prayer. It should be, leave us in awe that we get to communicate to the God of the universe and that he gives ear to our requests. He actually listens to us. He actually knows us that we are his child. Let me give you this analogy. So 3 a.m., this has happened many times, uh, not, not just for this simple request, but like the pitter-patter comes down the steps um, and then I get like a nudge or an eye poke or something. And it's one of my children. And they're making a request for me at 3 a.m. I'm not saying I'm the king, but you know. But think about this. Who has access to me at 3 a.m. that, I won't, that I'll, I'll give a warm welcome to for even a kid asking for water? Now, if any of you all came into my bedroom at 3 a.m., you would not get that same response. I'm not a gun owner, but I would quickly be one if that became a regular practice, right? So why, why is that? Think about this. Because of Christ and what he has done, we are God's children and we can approach the throne of the king of the universe at 3 a.m. and make a bold request for even a cup of water. That is powerful. When we think about how the gospel changes our boldness and confidence with this God who knows us and asks for us to come at any time and he hears us. That should leave us in awe of what prayer actually is. There's a shift that is happening in Esther that I want to talk about. There's, this, there's a couple things going on, but think about this. Mordecai is pleading with her and asking her to do what? To go in to the king and essentially put her life on the line. So the very thing that Rob talked about being her identity as a survivor, 
Mordecai is saying, hey, do the opposite of what you've done your whole entire life. So in order for her to do this, she actually needs to have this conviction that this is what I should do. She's not just going to do something like this out of compliance, right? If I said, hey, go and, you know, you might get killed. Like, you're going to, you're going to, like, kind of weigh out some things and, like, come to a place of, like, no, this is my decision. This is my conviction that's doing this. I think that's what's happening in Esther. I think the shift that she realizes that she needs God to intervene is actually happening. She actually own, starts owning this faith. Because where, how do I get that? Well, I don't think I'm reading too much into the story. If you think about who has told who has been the one responding to who all throughout the story? Mordecai has been telling Esther what to do. What happens in this, these four verses? Esther gives Mordecai something to do. See, I think she is owning and embracing that she is in a place for such a time as this. And then she gets to this place of saying, if I perish, I perish. That's the first thing that I think that, that's happening to her. The second thing is that's demonstrating this shift that she's acting out of this conviction is that she is actually going to put uh, the very thing that she has come to embrace, the comforts of the palace, that she has, she's made it. It's her identity. She is the survivor. She has made it. Self-sufficiency. She has pulled herself up by her bootstraps and made it to this place. And Mordecai is calling into question her identity and saying, would you leave the comforts of the palace and plead for people, not just yourself, not just looking out for you, but plead for other people's behalf. I think the thing that Mordecai is asking her to do is to lay down where she finds her identity. And where you find your identity really matters. If we believe that our identity is in what we do, what we have, how we perform, then we will not want to give that up. Our natural tendency is to be to trust ourselves, not God. We will be believing the lie that something else other than God can satisfy us. Tim Keller in Romans for You has this quote, when you give your heart to anything except God and seek happiness there, you will be disappointed. You will sooner or later realize that you're not that happy or that your happiness is very brittle and insecure. And you realize that that thing can never make you truly happy, permanently happy. And you'll say, never again, I won't trust this again. But what do you do then? Well, you will either look for something else and be disappointed again, or you will give up finding your happiness and become detached and can't enjoy anything at all. Ultimately, without the gospel, we must either worship the world's pleasures or withdraw from the world's pleasures. But the gospel gives us God, and he does not change. Without God being at the center of our heart's affection, our desires will not find rest. Rest is only being found in the security of Christ and finding our life hidden in his. See, Mordecai is reminding Esther that she did not get to this place by her efforts alone, but by the grace of God. You see, I think the thing that we need to embrace is how much and how prone we are to self-sufficiency in a performance-based faith of trying harder and trying to do life on our own let's apply this to our lives. How many of us are saying that we have this wealth, that we have this job, that we have this house, that we have this whatever, fill in the blank, because of what we have done? But let's look at Esther's story. Did Esther decide that she would be beautiful when she was born? Did Esther decide that something would happen to her that Mordecai would have to take over her guardianship? Did Esther even make the decision that she would be queen? 
Now, Esther did things certainly all along her life, but we could make the argument that it's just as much the grace of God in her life that did things on her behalf that she had no choice of. How true is that of us? I would not be standing here apart from the grace of God, of people who intervened in my life, of situations, of God putting me in a family, a believing family, of taking me to church so I heard the gospel and believed the gospel at a young age. I did not choose my family. I did not choose uh, my uh, small group leader in high school who intervened in my story when I was rebellious. I did not choose many things in my life. Now, I could turn to entitlement and say, but I've worked hard, the sweat of my brow. But in Deuteronomy 5, I believe it's Deuteronomy 5, where God reminds his people and said, when you come into the promised land, your temptation is going to be that it has been by my sweat, by my work, that we have got to this place. But let me remind you, it is me who has brought you out of Egypt. It is me who delivered you. It is me who gives you even the energy to work. So when we come to embrace that I breathe in air that I did not create into lungs that I did not design, into the blood is flowing through my life, that I eat and it creates substance for me and energy, all of these things are a gift of God. I'm not entitled to any of these things. And when we actually embrace that, it actually frees us from entitlement and moves us to gratitude that we actually respond and we see that it's been God's grace, even in some of the hardest things. We tend to look at only the good things in our life as God's grace. But it's much harder to look at situations where we would not have asked for, situations that we would not have chose, situations that we freely would have given up. That is where it is hard to see where is the grace of God working Reminded in Esther chapter 3, when the darkest of times the decree goes out, it looks as if everything is hopeless. This will be the moment that they celebrate as God's grace of redemption. And I believe that that can be true in our stories as well. There is only one identity that we can put ourselves in that will sustain all of the ups and downs of this world, and that is our identity in Christ. It is not our identity in temporal things. It's not our identity in what we do. It's not our identity in our wealth, even our family, our house, where we went to school, our money. All of those things can go. There's only one identity that will stand for eternity. You know, Rob and I were talking about um, these, this bookmarks, and as I, was, as I was preparing for this message, I said, you know, Rob, I could get up here and tell like some situations, some stories of, of my life, of how God has redeemed and, and worked through hard times, but y'all are just going to be like, oh, well, he's paid to say it, you know, like, you know, of course that happened to him or something like that. So we, we really wanted to take a tangible expression of what has happened in one of our, one of our uh, members' bodies. Of, of what has happened in him, of how God is redeeming and restoring him and how he's come to see it as God's grace, where he has embraced, if I perish, I perish. And so I want to invite my good friend Jack up here. He's going to share uh, with us his story. And uh, I've gotten to know Jack over, over the last uh, couple years, and he uh, went through men's discipleship um, two years ago. And it was just amazing to see God's transformational work uh, in Jack's life. And so I'm, I'm encouraged uh, for what, what Jack is going to share with us um, this morning. Jack has told me he is an introvert, but uh, he did very well the first service. So I think he's got a, I think he's got a promising career. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Jack, um, okay, so last week Rob handed out the bookmarks. Um, you, all filled, you all filled it out or, or will fill it out. Got us through, um, when Rob was, was walking us through that, how, how did you identify with Esther? How did you, what did you, what did you write down on your bookmark? Yeah, well, I, I wrote down a lot. Uh, so uh, let, let me just kind of summarize where I came from. Well, mm-hmm. I identify with Esther in uh, uh, being one of those individuals that was very self-reliant. Um, you know, Rob talked about the two spectrums of where you stand in terms of your uh, functional theology. Uh, I professed uh, the true gospel, but if you looked at my life, there was a lot of self-reliance in there and, and relying on Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, that changed all five years ago. Um, and uh, at that point in time, I went in for a routine physical, annual physical, and uh, some of my blood tests came back a little bit abnormal. So the doctor ran some other tests to rule out, you know, the ordinary things that might uh, be causing this. Nothing came back, so he went another level and went to some more esoteric tests. And uh, one of those came back and indicated that I have a, a informal, uh, a incurable form of cancer called m- multiple myeloma. Um, and that was diagnosis was confirmed through a bone marrow biopsy, and uh, you know this is like I say they don't know how to treat it very well. Uh, and the average life expectancy once it starts attacking your organs is about five years. Um, the good news of that was though was that they caught it because uh, I had no symptoms at a very early stage where it's called smoldering or asymptomatic. Um, and it's just exactly what it sounds like. It's smoldering, it's bubbling, it's growing, but growing very slowly. Uh, but uh, it will eventually turn, and no one knows when. They don't know, understand uh, molecularly what goes on to trigger it to the aggressive form, but it will eventually get there. could be tomorrow. It could be 20 years from now. So, uh, you know, in the meantime, because there is no cure and the uh, treatment is so toxic, they just tell you to watch and wait until it uh, does start causing you trouble. And so, um, uh, you know, every two to three months I go in for blood tests and, uh, you know, wait three days for the results and uh, to find out whether or not the five-year survival clock starts ticking. That's a long three days, I bet. Uh, It was a long three days. It's it's, it's actually getting better. Well... (laughs) So you're just, you just went in, I mean, you're feeling normal, you just went in for a regular routine. How did you handle the news, like, going in from that to you have this incurable cancer that's living in you, and it could just pop up at any time? Like, how did, how did you take the news? Uh, not well. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you know, it's uh, one thing, you know, it's all, uh, obviously a big adjustment when you're uh, 49 years old and you're told, uh, you know, you have an incurable inf- uh, form of cancer. Um, and that it'll likely cause a premature death. In my personal situation, uh, that feeling of anxiety was ramped up uh, tenfold because my two oldest children have special needs, and they're going to require some assistance um, at some uh, level for all of their natural lives. And, and, you know, the realization sets in that, hey, I'm not going to be there for as much of that to help out as, as, as long as I would. So, you know, uh, high, high, high anxiety. And the way I dealt with it, um, you know, initially was through self-help <laughs> and, unfortunately, self-medication. So uh, trying to uh, find it and will my way through all this and, and figure out how to make the best of the situation. And I found myself, uh, you know, coming home and drinking more and more wine uh, just to numb myself. And, uh, you know, obviously not a good situation. It was one where, um, 
you know, I know that was not helpful. I know it wasn't doing any good or anyone any good, and it wasn't good to not be as engaged uh, throughout the weekend as I could otherwise be. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, it wasn't until, uh, you know, realizing that all the success I had achieved through um, a lot of hard work and self-determination um, absolutely failed me. <laughs> and uh, uh, it wasn't working. And, uh, you, you know, um, the things that are make you so-called so successful in the world are, are not the things that necessarily make you successful in life. And it was mm -hmm. through that failure, uh, personal failure, that uh, uh, I've actually received one of the greatest gifts uh, uh, in my life. Okay, now that sounds um, hard to believe that a failure could be a gift, okay? I want you to explain <laughs> that to us, because that's really what we're after. Like, how, how did, you went in this darkest of times, you're trying to, you couldn't, you, you failed. How is that a gift? Yeah, well, well, like I say, it took me three years to get to that point, but at that point, I finally, uh, you know, one night just cried out to God and said, you know, please take this away from me, and, and more importantly, uh, transform my entire life. Um, I, I want to trust in you for everything, um, and uh, I, I want to make that transition. I, I, I really, really do. So, uh, um, you know, I think it was a very sincerely held belief, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, God honored that, and from that point forward, started a, a transformation in my life that, uh, uh, you know, has been just amazing. And, and again, I didn't get here very quickly. Remember, it was five years ago, and it wasn't until two years ago that I cried out. Yeah. So, um, you know, at that point, um, uh, immediately, then uh, the next day, I had no desire to ever drink again. Mm. Um, and I'm very skeptical of stories like that when I hear them, but God just did it, and uh, without any bit of effort on my part. Mm. Um, then, very importantly, um, I spent the next six months, you know, praying every single day for total transformation. And uh, I shared with you at that point, Eric, the book that I was reading to help guide me through that process. And, uh, you know, also during that time um, in the bulletin was a, uh, a call to the congregation. Uh, anyone who wanted to join uh, Eric's was starting up a, a new men's discipleship group. And not, not just a regular Bible study coffee clatch thing, but where you actually go in and the goal of it is transformation. I said, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is God's providence. It's exactly what I've been uh, praying for. So I started that too, and that was a process. Um, and, you know, the initial uh, lessons were uh, the true gospel, the gospel of grace, not of uh, self-works and, and, and the like. And, and so it, it began a, a great work in me, you know, unlearning all the bad theology I had and replacing it with the true gospel. So, you know, it's, you, sometimes you meet people and you can actually physically, like, see them change. And so when, I, when we first, you know, first remember you coming into the group, is this, like, a lot of, like, uncertainty, you know. But, man, like, God just started giving Jack this joy. And uh, just, like, seriously, like, see your, just your continents change. Mm -hmm. So how did Jack, tell, tell us how you embraced, um, like Esther, if I perish, I perish. Like, how did you embrace the hard reality that you were not facing. 
Yeah, you know, it was, it's, it's that total reliance on God. Um, you know, fast forward, it's five years later, I, I still have an incurable form of cancer that could change at any point in time, and actually I'm five years closer to when it will eventually change. Uh, my children are sweet kids, uh, they're now young adults, uh, and they are still going to need extra help. To, uh, uh, for uh, throughout their natural lives. So the circumstances haven't changed, but my heart has definitely changed uh, through a total uh, reliance on God. And I've never felt as much joy in the process of, you know, inviting him into my life in every aspect of my life and asking him to use me um, in all circumstances. I've seen the shift in you as you talk. I mean, it's like even the, where it was based on your performance it's now on Christ and his life through you. And I mean, like that, even that is, is such a shift. So how has this um, shaped your everyday decisions? Like how has this changed, um, Jack, every day? Yeah, I, it, it's really done it in three aspects. First is, uh, you know, uh, based on my view of God, uh, he, uh, he is so much bigger than I ever practically believed. Um, you know, I think my faulty reasoning was, you know, we're all taught that we're made in the image of God. I kind of reversed that around and said, well, well, God's a lot like us, but maybe with a few superpowers. Um, <laughs> but he's so much bigger. You know, he's created a vast universe. He's created all of us, all of the intricate biological happenings inside of us. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving. Um, he's, uh, you know, at this point in time, he's carrying on a billion conversations with believers around the world, mm. each one individually. Can you imagine that? That's the kind of God that I can embrace and place my full trust in. So, you know, I find myself, instead of, uh, you know, before doing my devotionals, well, maybe three times a week, um, yeah. and, 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 and the like, but, and then living my regular life, but inviting God in throughout the day. It's a constant conversation, um, not a, a rote prayer or a, a list, a checklist, but inviting him every, uh, throughout the day, saying, you know, God, reveal yourself to me in this situation. You know, mm -hmm. What are you trying to teach me throughout the day? And uh, very importantly, you know, show me how you can use me in uh, circumstances throughout the day. And it's, it's kind of like an adventure. So yeah. that's the first part of everyday living. The second part of everyday living is loving like God loves. Um, you know, the, the highest form of love is uh, loving um, someone and, and uh, giving them what, not necessarily what they want, but what they need. Um, and even at great cost to the person who's showing mm -hmm. the love. It sounds a lot like how God orchestrated the circumstances in my life, in addition to sending Jesus to die for mm -hmm. us a, a, an excruciating and humiliating death. Uh, so I ask him, you know, every day, you know, help me, give me the grace to love the unlovable and, uh, you know, have a heart for the least of these and uh, look for opportunities to, you know, inject myself in that, not for Jack's glory, but uh, for God's. And then finally, um, you know, uh, we're all terminal, Eric. I, I just... Say, say that again so they hear that. Uh, we're all terminal. I, I just, by my circumstances, uh, you know, recognize it a lot more than... You're so uh, aware of everyone. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, uh, well, I don't wish that on anyone. Um, it does provide a big benefit in that you are far more intentional um, uh, every day in how you conduct yourself in your relationships and how you spend your time. Um, in many ways, it is far better to live this life than to uh, not live this way or not live with the end of this life in, in mind. Hmm. 
So, um, you know, as you said, I'm, I'm an introvert and a private person. And two years ago, I would never be up here, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sharing my struggles with cancer, with my children, uh, or my personal failures. Um, but, you know, I, when Eric asked me, I, I actually wanted to do it. Um, uh, not, not uh, uh, again, to bring me any fame or anything yeah. like that, but if, if, it, if my story encourages just one of you out here to take that bold step and trust, I mean, absolutely, completely, let go of all the self-reliance, uh, encourages you to take that next step, um, uh, you know, it's all worth it. And, I think uh, it encouraged more than just one, Jack, today. So. But, um, yeah, and I'm just, you know, I'm so reminded of when Rob and I are praying uh, for our church, we're, we're praying that we become a, a, a community of faith that relies on the gospel of grace and not self-effort. And as we become a family of faith, we can share stories like this. I mean, the boldness that Jack can share in his vulnerability, he wouldn't be able to do two years ago. How, how is that? It's because of the power of Christ. It's not his performance anymore. And so thank you, brother, for sharing that. Would you guys give a hand, Jack? Appreciate it, man. Um, I can't think of a, a better way for us um, to close out this service with taking Lord's table and reminding us that it's, it's not our uh, self-sufficiency. Tim Keller in his message on Esther points out that Esther is not to be an example to follow, but serves as a signpost pointing to our Savior. It is not enough to be inspired by Esther's story or Jack's story and try to live up to that. If we try to live up to Esther in our own strength, we will be crushed. Our self-effort is not strong enough. Esther points out, points us to Jesus in several ways. Keller points out that Esther saved the Jews because of she identified with them and mediated for them. Jesus left his throne to identify with his own and did it on our behalf. Esther offers her life as a mediator for all the Jews. Jesus offers his life as a mediator and a ransom for many. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, This life is not ours. We've been bought at a price. We are now his. Let us be found in him. Ushers, you can come forward and pass the elements. And as we do, I want to give you a couple things to think about as we, as we sing and we respond. I want you to hold on to the elements, and I want you to think about these questions. Where have you resisted God's guidance and chose your own way? Where have you made life more about your agenda and your happiness? Where have you looked for your identity in other things, people, and the temporary life? You see, redemption is not just beyond this life. It is in this life. The good news of Jesus not only changes our destiny after we die, but it changes how we approach this life here and now. We can walk in the midst of difficult times because of the grace of God and his purposes. We can say and look at it, oh death, where is your sting? Now, if you have not put your faith in Christ, I want to plead and, and beg of you to think of this in this moment, that you are sitting in this seat in this moment, hearing the good news of Jesus on your behalf. Not as just an accident, but as God's divine sovereignty, that you would hear these words, that you can put your trust in the creator of the universe, that he loves you, he cares for you, and that he has done everything on your behalf on the cross and taken your sin 
and taken what you deserved and died the death that we deserved. I pray that you would shift your trust from yourself to Christ this morning. That we all would shift our trust from ourselves to Christ this morning. So as you hold those elements, would we be reminded of Christ's sufficiency and not our own? Would you stand with me? As we hold the elements, we're reminded that our trust is not in our sufficiency, our work, our efforts, but in Christ and what he has done on our behalf. And we take and remember the darkest moment in human history where we crucified the Son of God and we turn and we remember it as the time where God used his redemptive purpose to bring us back to God. Would you take and eat? And in the same way, it's not our righteousness that makes us acceptable to God, but it is Christ's righteousness that now covers us because of his blood and his perfection. Would you take and drink? I'm going to close out this service as singing together, reminding each other of our dependence on him. And in these next couple of moments, may we put into practice what Esther did. If she came and put her dependence on God and began fasting, and then she encouraged others to come along with her. We have kneelers up front. If, if any of you want to come and pray and then for someone to come with you, um, to pray. If you see someone up here, would you pray with them? But let's close mindful of our dependence on him in Christ's work as we sing together.